0: Well, as you all know, we've been in this process of looking for a full-time associate pastor to come on board, and uh, this is one of our candidate weekends. We've been so blessed to have the Polans with us, uh, David and Desiree and Jaden. Uh, it's been a real delight to get to know them since Thursday and uh, Friday, and we've put them through their paces thus far, uh, and it's been exciting and just a real, a real blessing. Uh, David, they come to us from New Mexico, so I think they get the commuter award for today, uh, which will be a little gold star they'll be able to take with them. Uh, But please welcome them and listen as David brings us uh, the word of the Lord for today. Please. Good morning, church. I was glad when they said to me, let us go worship in the house of the Lord. Um, before we dive into it, I think I need to start with some thank yous. Um, and if I were to stay, stand here and list all of them, uh, we would probably run out of time. So um, to all of the elders and deacons for your kindness and graciousness, the search committee, everyone we've had dinners with and who's opened their house to us, thank you um, Special thank you to Joseph and Rena, my wife, especially. Rena. appreciated your kindness um, to the shoots and the Zwickles. Thanks for a fun time at the Museum of Play. Um, we, we've just had a blessed and awesome time. Every time Desiree I get in the car after a day spent with you guys, we um, just reflect. We, we feel very unworthy of your love and the grace you've showed us. So thank you for that from the bottom of, of all of our hearts. Um, and I just want to thank you as a church, for graciously opening up your pulpit to me. This is a weighty and heavy responsibility. I do not take it lightly. And it blows me away that this, this wonderful church here in New York would invite me, kind of a rambunctious and wild young guy from the deserts of New Mexico, to bring before you God's Word. Um, it's a Yeah. Uh, wolves and all sorts of crazy stuff. But, but that you would allow me this, this wonderful privilege and opportunity to bring God's Word before you today. Um, it's something that I do not take lightly. So, uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, most people who know me know that I have a problem. In all honesty, I have a lot of problems. But there's there's one that I'm thinking of in particular that often arises when I have to preach. And the way I would put it shortly is... I think most people assume, I don't know what the word favorite actually means. Uh, I think it seems to mean for a lot of people, they look at me and I think favorite means to David, uh, whatever movie happens to fit in as a sermon illustration, he'll say that's his favorite movie. Uh, whatever passage is in front of me that I have to preach, that's definitely my favorite passage. So, over the past few months and years, you know, the Psalms of Ascent, they've been my favorite. Uh, the book of Mark, that's my favorite. The book of Romans, also my favorite. Hosea is a longtime favorite of mine. Um, I, I just seem to have a lot of favorites. It actually got to the point at my church a few years ago. We had uh, like a dinner lunch get together for Pastor Appreciation Month. And one of the wonderful ladies in our church made cakes for all of us on staff And she took the time and effort to write out everyone's favorite verse on the cake for everyone So you look at these cakes and they're lined up and they just look beautiful in the first one. So, you know Psalm 119 11 is just written out there beautifully You get to the next one and Isaiah 43 2 and 3 I don't know what the verses were and you get to the last one There's no verse written on it. It simply says Genesis 1 1 to Revelation 22 21 that was my cake um, the, the church seems to know that the, every verse is my favorite and so that means when I was tasked with figuring out what I'm going to come up here and preach uh, I was left at a bit of an impasse I would search and read scripture and come to a passage and be like this is a good one I should, this is a real good one I'll preach this one and then flip the pages a couple more reading a little bit more and I'd find another and be like okay this one's actually better we'll do this one and I reread the first one, I'm like, no, this one was really good. And then I'd go four or five more channels, like, actually, this is the passage that I should preach. And so I felt, um, I listened to you guys' sermon from last week, I was feeling decision paralysis. I had these wonderful options all placed in front of me, and I had no idea where to go. So I went to um, some of my good pastor friends, I said, you guys have done this before, you've, you've gone and you've, you've done this, what should I preach? And they were like, it's super easy, what's your favorite thing to preach on? Awesome, it's great, great advice. So I reached out to Pastor Reed, I called him and said, is there anything, I'm I'm desperate, I don't know if you can hear to my voice in this conversation, is there anything maybe you'd want me to preach on, any ideas or thoughts? And Pastor Reed's response was, whatever you want to preach, really. Now I'm really starting to panic, and this feeling of dread starts to creep into the core of my soul, but then he said something that helped immensely, he said I should preach on something God's been working on my heart recently, something that I've been learning, that God's been revealing to me from His Word, and it clicked. I knew exactly what I wanted to preach on. So all that to say, I'm very pleased today I get to share with you one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. <laughs> uh, but before we dive into it, let's let's pray. Uh, God, thank you. You are so good to us and so kind. Your love that covers sin is so... So much higher and deeper and wider than we can ever even begin to contemplate. You've been so good to us. Help us to find our joy in the truth and hope of the love that is the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if many of you may know through conversations with me this week, or in reading a bio, or checking up on me, I don't know. Um, I was a philosophy major in college. One of the things I love the most about being a philosophy major is one of the things most people hate the most, and that is I love formal logic. I love taking apart and breaking down an argument, looking at all the if A's, then B's, and all A's are B's, and this B's a C, therefore. That type of stuff I love. It makes me weird, I know, but I, I think it's awesome. And so when you read Paul, usually, You just see this wonderful, logical thought that he is able to exhibit. You read as he's writing, it's just brick after brick, building the most majestic and powerful arguments. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just writes the most sound and profound and life-giving arguments you will find anywhere in the world. But then right here in the middle of Ephesians, we find a passage that's in many respects unique among all of Paul's writings. Um, As I'm preaching, I call these rabbit trails, right? You're preaching, you're going along, you have an idea in your head, and all of a sudden you think of something, an idea, something, you're like, I should actually come preach about this over here. So you, you take the whole congregation with you, you go down this little rabbit trail, and you come right back. Hopefully you haven't lost too many people on this journey, and you continue right along where you left off. And if we were to look at Ephesians at a little bit bigger of a level for a second, Paul has been unfolding for the Ephesian church the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In in Ephesians 2, he actually starts in Ephesians 1 with this prayer for the saints that's just beautiful and powerful. You get to Ephesians 2 and he has unfolded the gospel. We have the cornerstone of the Reformation for by grace you've been saved through faith. And then he begins to explore that because of this saving grace, because of who we are in Christ, we are to be one in Christ. In Ephesians 2.19, he says, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then in chapter 4, skipping what we're talking about today, he's going to pick this thought back up, that we should be unified and have unity in in the body of Christ, and we should be in... 4 verse 3, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. And then right here, right in the middle, we have this beautiful defense of the gospel and beautiful praise, spontaneous praise that just wells up inside of Paul because the gospel is just that good. He can't keep it in. What he's seeing and what he's experiencing, what he's defending causes his heart to leap from his chest, and spontaneous praise to pour out of his mouth. And so that is what we're going to explore today. I want to start by asking a rhetorical question. Do you understand the gospel? Do you truly grasp the great heights of the love of God? Do you understand the depth of our need for a savior And the greatness of he who called us and saved us. Do you understand the gospel? And I don't mean this on an intellectual level. Not in a sort of mental ascent to facts and things you have learned and read. Do you, in the core of your being... From the innermost fibers of what makes you, you, in your heart and in your soul, do you know the gospel? Does it resonate with every fiber and every moment of your being? Do you know the gospel? To paint kind of a silly picture, if you've watched any amount of TV, you have seen this fairly common and cheap joke. You have person A. And they're talking to person B. And person B's hair is on fire. That's how we'll start this scene. And person A looks at person B and they say, your hair's on fire. And person B's like, yeah, I know, haha. And they keep talking about regular stuff. And person A's like, no, really, your hair is on fire. You follow the comedic rule of three. So the person in B is like, yeah, whatever, I get it, my hair's on fire. And person A's like, no, really, your hair, it's on fire. And if the joke is done correctly, you see this panic set in on the face of person B. The the realization that their hair is truly on fire begins to set in. And then to do the joke well, they have to freak out and go kind of absolutely stark raving mad because their hair is on fire. And that's a silly picture. But for many of us, when we come to the gospel, we act like the man whose hair is on fire and we don't care. We hear it, We can repeat the words, yeah, my hair's on fire. But we don't act and respond like someone who realizes that their hair is actually on fire. In this section of scripture that we just read, Paul's joy and his hope and all of the things that make his life resonate with the gospel are overwhelming and overflowing and exploding out of him. But we struggle even trying to get that thought out. I've been thinking about this a lot recently. It seems for many of us, we make excuse after excuse after excuse as to why we cannot share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My work won't let me. I can't have those conversations. I just don't want to alienate people. I don't want even feel weird around me. I don't know what to say. Maybe I just don't know how to say it. What, what would happen if I did more harm than good? I just don't want to have to get awkward around people we make excuse after excuse as to why we cannot share the gospel paul has quite the opposite problem in our passage for today starting in verse pretty much all of chapter 3 starting in verse 1 he's he's exploring this defense of why he is called to preach the gospel to everyone People seem to be getting mad at him, like, well, why are you preaching to these Gentiles? Like, I have to preach this gospel to all people. This is the mystery hidden for all ages. I have to keep talking about this to everyone. Thrown in prison because he couldn't keep his mouth shut about Jesus. Stoned, shipwrecked, abandoned, left for dead. Paul couldn't seem to figure out how to stop talking about Jesus. And that's one of our greatest talents, is not talking about him. Our lives should resonate with the gospel the way Paul's does. We should be filled with hope and joy and exuberance when we contemplate who Jesus is. So today I just want to look at our passage. It's a short passage filled with wonderful and amazing truths. I want to find four things. We're just going to walk through it. Four things that Paul, as he begins to grasp and realize... That if we would be able to see the same things, I feel that we would be able to rejoice in the gospel so much more boldly and with so much more power. The first thing we see, we rejoice in a gracious call. Our passage begins, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in the God who created all things. If we take a second and just ponder and dwell on for just a minute what Paul's actually saying, he's been made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. This was given him according to the working of his power. He was given grace to do what? To preach. He is called to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. Paul looked at the call in his life not as some weighty burden. And if we look at Paul's life, it was a very weighty burden. But the words Paul chooses to use to describe this call is it is a grace. And it is a gift. And while we must be careful how we step ourselves into this verse, we must first understand Paul is in a unique role. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. He has a unique place in the history of, of salvation unfolding to all men. He is he's Paul, and we're not. We cannot just directly co-opt this passage to ourselves, but we know this to be true. We have also been given a gracious call. Ephesians 2.10, just before, says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared in advance, that we should walk in them. We all have that call. When Jesus gives the Great Commission, we are to all go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That is all of our duty. It's unavoidable, it's undeniable, and it is placed on each and every one of us. So I ask you, Do you face this call with a long face and a bad attitude? Or do you rejoice in the call that's been placed on your life? Is my life filled with joy as I contemplate the greatness and the weightiness and the heaviness of what God has asked of me? I often put it this way when I try to teach teenagers this thought. Often Christianity is painted as a set of rules. You have to do this and you have to do that and you can't do this, and you can't do that. If you can figure that out, you can be a Christian. And as soon as we start referring to Christianity as the have-tos and the can'ts, we've messed up. We have missed the boat entirely. As a Christian, I get to serve the Lord. I get to proclaim the gospel until he returns. I don't have to sin anymore. I am no longer a sinner. I am one who is saved by grace. I am able to now not do this or do that. That is the truth and the power of the gospel. And that is a subtle but profound change. And it looks like this. God, in his his infinite wisdom, saw me. A foolhardy and foolish man. A man who messes up all the time. Ask my wife. She'll tell you that's true. A man who in his haste and his carelessness leaves behind me just a wake of mess ups and brokenness. And he saw me. He chose me not because of some great thing I had within me, not because of some wisdom that I possessed, not because of some attribute that I just had in abundance, but because he loved me. Because for my good and for his good pleasure, he called me to proclaim the gospel. That's how it works. Don't miss this. Don't miss that this gracious call that we have all been given is worth rejoicing over. If we understand that, if we, if we get into our minds the truth of what our gospel call is, when we read passages like Philippians, when Paul says, even if I am to be poured out like a drink offering on the sacrificial altar of your faith, even then I am glad and I rejoice with you. If we understand the call, verses like that make sense. But when we view it as this burden and this weight, we begin to lose sight of that hope. Secondly, we see in this passage that we rejoice in a powerful church. What we see is we'll see an unfolding kind of through this section that we are we are given a gospel call, but then we are placed into a powerful church, Ephesians 3:10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. We often miss the beauty of this point. That here, in this body of believers, this fellowship of the saved, this group of men, women, and children who have been called and equipped by God, it's a beacon. Not just to Fairport. Not just to western New York over here. Not just to this state, not just to this country, not even just to this world. This church is a beacon of the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That is a powerful and mighty church. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. First Peter chapter 1. Because what Paul's saying implicitly here, Peter's actually going to make extraordinarily explicit, and it's beautiful in how he frames this. 1 Peter 1, 12, to kind of set the stage a little bit for you, he's been reflecting on the prophets and how our position is actually very much better in a lot of ways than that of the prophets. Because while they had to kind of guess at and figure out a lot of things, we've been preached to by the Holy Spirit, and that's what we're going to read right here. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. We miss this. How amazing... Is this church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets? The cornerstone is Christ Jesus. How amazing is that church? Well, whereas though the prophets, they inquired and they seeked, we have had the gospel announced to us through those who preach the good news and are sent by the Holy Spirit from heaven. That is a powerful position. And as if that was not impressive enough, Peter is sure to tell us that this good news is something that's so wonderful, so majestic, so powerful that even angels long to gaze at it. The truth of the gospel that we hold as a church is a powerful and profound and wonderful and amazing truth. And it should cause our hearts to rejoice. This church has been set in a powerful and unique and important position. And the bonus is we get to be a part of it. We, us, the body. And Paul will explore that later in Ephesians. We are the body, the whole body, joined together and held together at every joint. That is the church that we are a part of. This thing we do together, this wonderful practical, outworking of the body of Christ is something that angels long to look at. We have the privileged position of being a part of that. So I ask you a question. Does this church make you rejoice? Do we understand how incredible this gift, this body, this wonderful gift that we have been given through the Holy Spirit and the grace and kindness of God, built on the word of God and the work of Jesus Christ, do we realize how incredible this church is? If we do, church then becomes not a burden. It's not a place I go and check off my box of spiritual disciplines I did this week. Did I read my Bible six times? Check. Did I pray 12? Check. Did I share the gospel with at least one person? Check. Did I go to church this week? Check. I guess I'll start over again next week. If we understand the gift of the church, it becomes a living and vibrant and active community of like-minded people and we all get to be a part of the unveiling of the manifold wisdom of God. That is a powerful church. To say it in earthly terms, we have been given entry into the most promising venture the universe has ever known. Complete with stock options, we have an ownership in it and a retirement plan that will last forever. We are in a powerful church. And from here, Paul's reasons for rejoicing keep getting better and better. The third thing we see in Ephesians we rejoice in a unique position. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. This then becomes the heart of the matter. If a call is what we've been given, if a church is where we've been placed, then this is referring to a fundamental change in who we are. I often get accused, probably rightfully so, of focusing a little bit too much on who I used to be. That's because I think it serves us well to see a juxtaposition from the depth of depravity from which I was called and the majestic, glorious heights to which I have been called. And the more I can put those two things together and see how vastly different they are, the more this joy leaps in my heart. So I ask that you humor me for just a second on this one and try to paint a picture. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not sick, dead. Sin was not something we did. Sin was something we were. It was a fundamental part of the core of my being. It was a defining characteristic. Not only that, but every moment of every day was just me piling sin upon sin, condemnation upon condemnation, death upon death on my soul. I was a rebel. I was in war with a holy God. That is a big problem. And then if I thought in my own strength and my own wisdom, maybe I'll try to do better now. I'm now heaping more and more condemnation on myself. As in my pride and in my selfishness, I think I can do this on my own. More and more condemnation. More and more shame. Paul will say elsewhere in scripture that the best I could ever hope to achieve in my own righteousness would be something about as good as a filthy rag. That was my position. I was a small, tiny man cursing in the face of a holy, just, and righteous God. Yet, through the propitiating work of Jesus Christ, because of the completed work of redemption, I have now switched sides in an abrupt and miraculous way. Whereas once I was in staunch opposition to God, I have now been granted boldness and access with confidence. The only way that happens is through the miracle of grace. The only thing that can affect such a profound change is the love and mercy of God. The only hope that I, a sinner, could ever hope to have Is it someone better than me, someone perfect, someone holy, someone good and kind and loving would grant me their righteousness? I could not do it on my own. And that's why I rejoice. I put my confidence in him, not in myself. I put my hope in him, not in myself, as the... As the hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's the hope I have. And so when we read passages like 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul gives this list of sins and things that defile and things that make us filthy, He can end with this phrase. He says, Such were some of you, but you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified. The person who I am has changed. We cannot miss this. We have been shown in the work of Christ the unfathomable depths of the love and mercy of God. He showed us his great love, not when we were righteous, not when we were good, Not when our theology was all in line, not when we were doing the right things or saying the right things. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And our position has changed. This then becomes why the book of Hebrews is so important. Our fundamental position has changed because we have a great high priest. We have one who always lives forever to intercede for us. We have an eternal mediator. We have access through confidence, or confident access, boldness through Christ. And it's through faith and trust in him that we find our better position. It is through the work of Christ, and only through that work, that we could ever hope to have access, let alone access with confidence. And boldness, we don't think of those words often enough. That we could have boldness and access with confidence to God is the greatest miracle the universe has ever known. It's the biggest plot change in the history of ever, and we're a part of it. So we ask, when we contemplate how great and enormous the change that was wrought in our hearts How incredible this transformation that we have undergone was. When we think about that and we contemplate that, do you rejoice from the core of your inmost being? Finally, I want to spend just a few moments discussing the last phrase that Paul puts in this section. He says this, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Here we see that we rejoice with an eternal perspective to keep building the case, if you will. A gracious call is what we've been given. A powerful church is where we've been placed. A unique position is who we've changed into. And an eternal perspective is now what we hope in. We have a wonderful, eternal perspective. Paul gets it. Paul gets it in a real way and I hope one day that I can understand the way Paul does deep down in the marrow of my bones. He'll write elsewhere that these light momentary afflictions are not even worth comparing to the future weight of glory that we will receive. So he says in our passage, do not lose heart when you see the trials and the heartaches that I'm enduring. These Roman chains, don't worry about them. These struggles that I face, it'll be okay. Those things that God has seen fit to draw me through on your behalf, don't lose Heart, it will be okay because we do not place our hope or our joy in temporary, fleeting pleasures, no matter how good they may be. We do not put our hope and our joy in anything temporal. We put our hope and joy in treasures that cannot be defiled by moth or rust. We have eternal perspective. We will forever be singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive all glory and all honor and all praise forever. To quote another song, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That's our perspective. And if we grasp this, if we understand our eternal Perspective; It can help us understand all that's come before it. To paint the picture for you. I rejoice in a gracious call because I know the one who calls me is sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, the God who knows the end from the beginning, the one who works all things according to his good pleasure. Therefore, I rejoice in this call because I know no matter how hard it is, no matter how challenging it is, that the one who calls me is faithful. He will surely do it. And I rejoice in that call. It's much easier to rejoice in the powerful church when I have an eternal mindset. We've all been there. We've lived life together. Day-to-day living with fallen people like myself can be very difficult. Tempers flare. Feelings get hurt. Things happen. But an eternal perspective on what God is building through His church gives me hope and joy that these things will soon pass as we are all being conformed into the image of His Son. An eternal perspective helps me realize that this powerful church is something worth cherishing and worth fighting for. Finally, an eternal perspective on my new position lets me know that He will never leave me nor forsake me. I can say with confidence like Paul does that I am convinced, I have been convinced, I have searched everything and I know this one thing to be true. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor the present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor Anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the security, the eternal security of my position. And as I contemplate this, and in this eternal perspective, I can rejoice. The point, church, is this. When I called Nas Pastore, what should I preach on? He said, What's God been working on your heart? What have you been contemplating? What's God been showing you? Put simply, it's this I will never, ever, ever, ever be able to completely mine the depth of the joy that the gospel should bring to my life. There is always more to rejoice in when I look at my life and I I think that I have a grasp on how amazing and gracious this call I have been given in, I am struck over and over again by how much better it is. It is always, always, always better again and again. When I begin to think of how incredible this church is, that God has chose us to be a vehicle not just of working, but to unfold the manifold wisdom of God, not just on earth, but in the heavenly places, I am struck over and over and over again at how wonderful that is, because it is always, always, always better when I contemplate how amazing it is this gift that I have been given through the work of Jesus Christ. When I look at what God has wrought in my life, I can't help but be overcome by this overwhelming joy because it is always, always, always better. And when I think of the eternal joys and how amazing and incredible it is that what God has given me are not temporal, fleeting pleasures, but joys that will last for eternity. It is always, always, always better. I cannot escape that. And so for me, As it is for you, there is always room for more joy in the gospel mystery. May we walk in that truth. Let's pray. Dear we thank you. For your grace, for your mercy, for the love that you so richly lavished upon us. Help us to understand deeper and in a more real way, that gospel truth. God, I pray that you would help us to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Help us to know your love that surpasses all understanding. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ever ask or imagine,